Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church on this Marathon Sunday. Glad you guys can make it through the traffic. Uh, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 6 and verse 27 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 36 is our passage this morning. That passage can be found on page 862 if you are using a church Bible. Page 862. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. Before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for this time where we can gather as a church family to worship you. Uh, we love to worship you, God. And we ask that as we come to your word, that you would speak to us and that you would show us things in our lives that, that we need to bring under your lordship. Would you please motivate us to live godly lives by showing to us just how much it is that you love us and how secure we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, for those here who may not know you this morning, would you please, God, make yourself known. Only you can do that, Lord. So we ask that you would save God and continue to save us and that by the Holy Spirit you would build your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we come to a text that is among the most difficult texts in the Bible to follow. We have before us a teaching that reveals to us, perhaps more than other passages do, exactly what is within our own hearts and unveils who it is that we are really living for. This passage shows to us our true spiritual state in a sense, and it is about an utterly uncommon and a thoroughly distinct kind of love which proves a discipleship that is not of this world. And Jesus has opened up his discipleship series, so to speak, his instruction about the kingdom of God and who it is that is a part of it and the marks of a true follower of Christ. Jesus has opened up his teaching shockingly upfront and with full disclosure that the most blessed people can oftentimes be the poor ones the hungry, the, the ones who are crying, the persecuted, the rejected, because they have truly ascertained the value of the Son of Man and are willing to lose all to gain Him and to sell all to have as their own this treasure of Jesus, their pearl of great price. That those who are the most blessed will oftentimes look like the most pitiable. And those people who are actually the most to be pitied they don't always look that pitiable. The ones with the most woe can oftentimes be the ones with wealth, those who are satisfied, laughing, the accepted, and popular because they do not see the value of Jesus and would rather invest themselves into this passing world instead. Jesus is not their great treasure. The here and the now is more of their pearl of great price. And so the Christian, the disciple, the true follower of Jesus, treasures something different and lives a life of distinction and does not worship what the world worships. Jesus is drawing a thick line between the believer and the unbeliever that the two live for entirely different things and towards totally different ends. And we are either blessed in this life because of it or we are full of woe in this life because we reject it. And that line, which Jesus has drawn, gets much thicker within these verses before us. 
showing to us a vital difference between the people of God and the people of the world in the way that we love. This text is all about love. This passage is about Christian love, which is very distinct from ordinary and worldly love. We read in verse 27, and Jesus says there, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We have in these opening verses Jesus' command of a self-sacrificing love for the people who least deserve it. He is telling his followers to be other-seeking rather than self-seeking in their affections for the people with the least claim on them. The Christian, the believer, the follower of Christ, the citizen of the kingdom of God, loves even their enemies at cost to themselves. This is a line of distinction from those who know God and those who do not know God. And Jesus has taken what is commonly accepted as the golden rule, the last verse, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or the more popular paraphrase, do unto others what you would like them to do to you. No one really argues with that rule. It's a statement that requires that we ought to put ourselves into other people's shoes and to think about their own situations, to sympathize with them, to see the world from their perspective so that we might better understand how to love and provide for and to care for others in a way that they need it most. This rule here is really derivative from the second greatest commandment that you shall love your neighbor even as you love yourself. And most people would agree that this is a very good thing to do whether you believe in a God or not. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. But Jesus heightens that concept in these verses by applying it to the very people we do not naturally want to apply it to, by directing it to the most unlovable kind of people. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Jesus is not talking about loving family and friends. And even family and friends can oftentimes be very difficult to love. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Jesus is speaking about the one who doesn't like you all that much and mistreats you, maybe even attacks you, lies about you, often takes advantage of you. He's talking about the ones who have wronged you and likely are going to continue to do so. Love them sacrificially. The ones who give us zero reason to love them. Those who are not seeking our best interests, but are most likely seeking their best interests at our expense. The call to follow Jesus is a call to love our enemies, not only the people we most naturally love, but the people whom we would most naturally feel ill will towards. And so Jesus is heightening this golden rule, so to speak, in a way that no one wants it to be heightened. And then he heightens it some more by being very concrete. He doesn't allow love to be in the abstract as something defined as merely a confession of the mouth or a feeling in the heart. I really love that person. But he says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
while our most natural response to those who hate us, mistreat us, and go out of their way to make our lives more difficult is to hate back, mistreat back, and to make their lives more difficult back. Jesus is calling his followers to respond with good, to reply to curses with a genuine hope for their blessing, to pray for the well-being of those who take away our very own well-being. And if that isn't concrete enough, Jesus spells it out even further. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. A strike to the cheek in the first century is a backhanded slap to the face. That's what people would do when they were put out of the synagogue, put out of the fellowship. That's what the authorities would do. It is the highest kind of insult and rejection in the Jewish culture during Jesus' time. And so if you ever feel insulted, the command here is don't insult back. Endure it, even if more insults are coming, even if it is humiliating. Have a willingness to remain vulnerable, not self-protective, but open in the face of rejection. The person who takes away your cloak, that's your outer garment, your jacket, be ready to even have your inner garment, your shirt taken away as well. The one who asks of you and takes of you, do not demand back. These are pictures of real and genuine need, even the most basic needs, like clothing, and even when it is the people who don't like you all that much, that Jesus is asking us to love in very concrete and self-sacrificing ways, not in ways that keep a mental score or calculate if this love is going to go both directions in roughly equal amounts. But this is a love that is displayed deliberately, in self-forgetful giving, that even if we suffer financially and even if we suffer humiliation and lose some dignity, we are to be more concerned for the needs of others than we are for even our own needs. Now, if you feel an objection coming up your throat that this doesn't make any sense at all, and how in the world is anyone supposed to love like this? How is this kind of love feasible or practical? This is not realistic. If you are beginning to feel a set of objections arising in your mind, then you are beginning to understand the call of discipleship and the call to follow Jesus, and you are really beginning to truly understand what Christian love really is. Because Jesus' commands to love here is utterly different than what natural love that we wouldn't see and witness in the world. This selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love to the ones who do not deserve it and have not earned it, the giving of ourselves to even our enemies, is the difference between Christian love and the world's love. This is a primary distinction between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. And we will get to some potential objections and applications in a little bit, but the principle stands that we are to love those who have the least claim on us we are to give ourselves to those who least deserve our love, and we are to love sacrificially and without any obsession of self-protection. And if that is all shocking to you, then you do understand exactly what Jesus is asking of the ones who want to follow him. Verse 31, let's follow Jesus' rationale. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus is calling his followers to a very uncommon love that only makes sense when we are God's very own sons and daughters. This is a distinct kind of love that is only understandable when we are looking to a reward that is not in the here and in the now. The love that usually makes sense is to love those who love you back and to good to those who do good to you. You know, it's Christmas season, which means it's buying presents time and, and trying to figure out how much you spend on this person or that person. Sometimes the question arises, well, what did they get us last year? Because it has to be about the same amount. Or at our house, the kids are often found fighting, and I gave him a bite of my stuff. He gave me a bite of his, but his bite is way bigger than mine. Everyone knows that that's wrong. And judging by their screams, it is a horrendous, this is not fair. Love is supposed to be fair and equal. I'm not going to give him a bite of anything ever again. Why? Because love is not being reciprocated proportionally. This kind of love, Jesus says, is how sinners love. Sinners in this context, not meaning those who sin, which is all of us, but those who do not know the Lord. And this kind of love operates on a certain principle and an unspoken agreement that I scratch your back and then you scratch mine, that I am friends with you when I get a benefit from you and you are friends with me when you get a benefit from me. We love each other to the degree that it makes sense for each other. And this person operating on this principle, therefore, can never love an enemy because there is nothing to gain from that relationship except loss. It's going to be a one-way street when you love an enemy. And, but here, Jesus here questions a gain in that kind of love. He asks, what benefit is that to you? And then he asks the same question again of this kind of love. What benefit is that to you? And then he asks a third time of this give to receive kind of love. What credit is that to you? And the answer in our text is, what benefit, what credit? I got to keep my cloak and my tunic. I got to keep my dignity. I will never get slapped more than one time because I'm going to protect my other cheek at all costs. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I'll get all the money I have ever lent out. I get it all back in due time, every single cent. I am never going to be on the wrong side of this ledger of love. And I am more protected and more safe when love is about, my love is all about reciprocation. Of course I gain, Jesus. Of course I benefit because no one is ever going to take advantage of me. But this is not the gain that Jesus is talking about here. This is not the benefit and the credit that his eyes are looking towards while he asks the question three times. And this is not the kind of love that our Savior requires of those whom he loved with all of his being. Listen to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, which describes the kind of love that God has for us. It says there, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You hear those descriptions of the objects of God's love. Listen to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The Bible clearly describes our state as being weak, ungodly, still sinners, even in the act, and enemies of God, that that is when God gave to us his beloved son, that that is when God so loved us, that that is when Jesus Christ decided to give his own life for us in death. Why? So that we might be saved by his life. Can you imagine if Jesus said, I'm going to only love you to the degree that you first loved me? I'm going to love you to this point, but not if it costs me more than it costs you. I will scratch your back only as much as you scratch my back because I am never going to be on the wrong side of this ledger of love because love needs to be all about reciprocation in roughly equal amounts. I mean, I got to protect myself. The gain that Jesus is asking about for the one who protects their cheeks and their jackets and their bank accounts as nothing. The gain that they are refusing is to be identified intimately as the sons of the Most High because we are most identified as God's very own children when we love our enemies like God has loved his own enemies. And we are most assuredly his own when we love in the same way by which he loved each one of us. We confirm our relationship to God by our own self-sacrificing love for the people who least deserve it towards those even enemies who have no claim on us. And this is one of the greatest ways that we glorify our God. And the future reward that Jesus speaks of here, which will be great, the future reward and credit and benefit is not a thousand cloaks and tunics in eternity or the softest, most supple, unslapped cheeks in heaven or pockets filled with mucho cash. But it is, brothers and sisters, that heaven is enjoyable to the degree that we have lived our lives unto him in the here and in the now, that eternity is all the more glorious and all the more rewarding when we have given our life and our love in a Christ-like way during our very short time upon this earth. Jesus, in asking his followers to be sacrificial in their love, when it seems like a losing proposition, is actually aiming for our highest and most rewarding eternal good. This kind of love is at the very heart of our Savior, and we are most like him when we love in the same way. At the end of the book of Luke, in chapter 23, Jesus, at that point, has already been betrayed by his own followers, and he has been disowned by the crowds of people who used to be his biggest fans. A guy whose feet he washed betrays him with a kiss on the cheek, and Jesus is already beaten and mocked. He's been scourged and taunted, and his naked and bleeding body is hung up between two of the worst kinds of criminals. And in verse 34 of Luke chapter 23, Jesus prays for his enemies, and he says there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are some of our Lord's dying thoughts that even with himself feeling the most suffering humanity has ever felt in his own body, that it is even then that the good of his enemies is front and center among his dying thoughts. And you know what most of the people there say in response to the entire scene? Verse 35, he saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They mock him. Oh, Mr. Chosen One. Oh, Mr. Christ. You're supposed to save me? You can't even save yourself. And if this were some kind of superhero movie, this would be the opportune time where Jesus, out of self-love and self-interest and a desire for self-revelation, would rip those nails out of that wooden cross and make every single one of those people eat their words. But Jesus instead does something even more powerful. And that is, he dies for his enemies. He suffers for their sins. And the chastisement that brings us peace, it's all laid upon him. Jesus, in response to all of that hate, saves the souls of many of those who hated him the most. And it's interesting that as Jesus teaches from our passage about loving our enemies, that his own death would be kind of a blueprint for quite a few others as well. Luke writes also in the book of Acts, and in chapter 7, there's a young believer named Stephen. And Stephen's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. This is a guy who serves tables to the poor widows so that they could eat. And then he cleans up and waits on people so that their preachers could study. And it would be Stephen himself who would be put into a position where he would boldly proclaim Christ and point out sin, which beckons for response in the face of authorities. He was proclaiming to them, repent, basically. And yet the response that Stephen gets instead is not repentance, but rage. And the crowd of people rush him violently. They drag him out of the city, and the mob throws rocks at him until he dies. And yet it is that with his dying breath, what does he say? Acts 7, verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to what Jesus cried out upon that cross when his own enemies seemed to have the upper hand? And that is because, brothers and sisters, one of the most defining characteristics of a true spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ and perhaps the defining mark of a citizen of the kingdom of God is a sacrificial love for the ones who least deserve it and a love that aims for the highest good of even our own enemies because it glorifies the God who so loved us and gave himself for us, and it recognizes that we were once the enemies until God loved us, that we were once the haters until God saved us. And the more and more we realize this, the more and more we are able to love those likewise. And so what kind of gain is it, brothers and sisters, that you are looking for when you choose who it is that you want to love. And thus this teaching that Jesus gives to us, perhaps more than other passages do, reveal to us exactly what is within our own hearts and reveals who it is that we are truly living for and shows to us our actual spiritual state to expose if the love Christ has for us in the gospel has really taken root deeply into our hearts and in our lives. And the obvious question at this point for us in application is who has God placed in your life that you find very difficult to love? Who is it that may be currently functioning as your enemy? The one who persecutes you and makes fun of you for praying at work, always making jokes about the Christian guy, the Ned Flanders? Is it the ex-spouse who just continues to make your life more difficult even though the marriage is supposed to be over? Is it the boss who rides you but doesn't ride the other employees the same way? Is it the in-laws, the wayward children filled with disrespect, 
Is it the crazy neighbor? Who is it in your life that you find it very difficult to love and that you gain nothing from in being kind to them? Who is the one that mistreats you and even attacks you, lies about you, manipulates you, takes advantage of you, who is not seeking your best interests but are seeking their own best interests at your expense? Brothers and sisters, sometimes it is that God does put enemies into our lives not so that we can focus on them and rehash and recount and relive and replay all the ways that they have wronged us. But sometimes it is that God does put enemies into our lives, not so that we can focus on them, but so that we might focus more and more on him and rehash and recount and relive and replay everything that God has done for us and continues to do for us in Jesus Christ. Whenever you come face to face with an enemy, you are reminded about what kind of enemy you once were. We were the ones who were God's enemies. We were the ones who were perishing. We were the ones who needed love the most. And I think for a Christian martyr like Stephen, the only way it could be easier to pray for the good of his own murderers it, it could only occur when he knew exactly what it was like to be in their shoes, what it was like when he used to live apart from God. And when he was foreign to his love, it was only then that he could desire with his dying breath that even those enemies of mine could be saved. Now I want to get to some disclaimers. Turning the other cheek does not mean allowing someone to beat you up and physically abuse you. This is not a text that promotes sinful behavior. A slap to the face in the first century again was a symbolic act of disrespect, not one of great physical or fatal harm. If you are in a relationship where that is physically abusive, Jesus is not demanding that you continue to get beat up and allow the abuse to happen. We should not turn the other cheek in the case of sexual abuse, physical abuse, child abuse, and whatnot. While we are not supposed to retaliate back, this text is not one that promotes abuse or encourages self-destructive behaviors and enables violent sin in other people. If someone were trying to kidnap one of my kids, I'm not going to offer this one and this one and this one as well. <laughs> Again, this is sacrificial love. is not a love that furthers or enables more and more sinful behavior. This is not a love that enables someone's drug habit or continues to enable their gambling habit, etc., etc. This is also not a text that says you have to go out with the guy or the girl that keeps asking you because I better love people at all costs of myself. This is not a text about dating. Likewise, if someone is trying to take advantage of you financially and ask you for a jacket and they see your willingness, then your shirt, then they say, why don't you give me your car? Give me your house. Give me the deed. This text is not demanding that you give it all and go bankrupt, especially when the person asking already has a jacket and a car and a place to sleep. This is also not a text that promotes borrowing money and never paying it back. This is not a text that says to forego child support so that you can enable a deadbeat ex-spouse. God calls us to provide for our own families, and we do work hard to put food on the table. But if you suffer financially because you are determined to help other people's real and genuine needs, even those who will never, ever pay you back or even be grateful then you are getting closer and closer to demonstrating the love that we have from God found in Jesus Christ. This passage is more and more about a disposition of love, our default setting, as Ligon Duncan puts it, that we are in this posture of wanting to love others in very concrete and practical ways, even when it costs us something. And there are countless ways in which this text can be misinterpreted and misimplied, and therefore you must use wisdom. 
You can always talk to one of the pastors and elders if you need any kind of guidance that we can offer you. But having said all of these disclaimers, I also know that sometimes we can disclaimer and disclaimer and disclaimer the words of Jesus to death and look for all the ways that we don't have to obey these words and look for all the loopholes because, again, our hearts are naturally so self-protective and we can study disclaimers more than we dwell upon real and practical ways we can immediately begin to love other people and even our enemies. If we find ourselves with more objections coming to mind rather than opportunities that God is giving us to display his glory in his love, then that is very telling of where our hearts are at. As we meditate on these words of Jesus, perhaps God in his grace is letting you know it. Perhaps God in his mercy is showing to us just how self-protective we really are and how much our default setting and our disposition needs to change. This text, again, is supposed to shock us because it is so unnatural. This text is supposed to be unnatural to us because the love we have in Jesus Christ is so unnatural. If you are having a difficult time in certain relationships, start to pray for the people who are so difficult for you. Even when it is hard to practically love them, pray and pray and pray for their highest eternal good, and you will find often that your heart for them will begin to change because you've developed this habit of praying for them. Again, God does sometimes put very difficult people into our lives, not so that we can focus purely on them, but so that we might focus on Jesus and to ascertain just how much his love has truly taken root in us. Do you love your enemies? This is a question that strips away the facade and peels back the veneer of a superficial Christianity. If you do not, then the answer again is always look to Christ, look to him, look to him. As we come to the Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, this is an opportunity for us as one church body and one church family to dwell together upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that he withheld nothing from us, we who were his own enemies, but he gave all of himself for us. Look to the one who has loved us, brothers and sisters, and find in him everything that you need to live a godly life. Now, if you're new to our church or this is your first time here, I don't want you to get the gospel wrong. It's not that if I love my enemies to this degree, then I get to go to heaven. That's not how we get to heaven. The only way anyone can be saved is by a perfect, sinless substitute for our imperfect, wicked, sinful selves, that the punishment we are due, someone has to pay. We are not acceptable the way that we are. We have to be washed clean. And the love that Jesus Christ has for us in the gospel is, I'm sinless, and I'll give my life for the sinful. I will shed my blood to wash away their sins. I will die and yet defeat death and rise again to defeat the power of death and the power of sin. And I will ascend to heaven because I am going to come back one day soon for all of those who are in love with me and are waiting for me. We do not obey these things to get into heaven, but because God has given us heaven and given us himself, we begin to display these truths of God in his own children. This is not how we get to heaven, 
but it shows us who's actually going there by the way that we live our lives. And so brothers and sisters and church family, again, as we come to the Lord's table, look to Jesus Christ with all your being. Don't look at what's difficult around you. Abide in the vine and he in you, and you can bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text, and uh, we thank you for your word. And this is a very difficult text to follow if we're being real with ourselves. And this is a teaching that does reveal perhaps more than other passages do exactly what is within each of our own hearts. Would you, by the Holy Spirit, unveil ourselves to ourselves? Would you show us our true spiritual state? And after doing that, Lord, would you bring us so close to you? Help us enjoy all the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to feel secure in how much you love us. And God, with that, would you help us love in very distinct and uncommon ways so that the watching world might understand more and more something about your son. We pray for our church family that we'd be a family filled with love for each other and for our community and for our enemies that people might know who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.